We are uh, continuing our study through the book of, of Hebrews. And we are in chapter 3. Um, last week we uh, looked at Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. This week we're uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 11. I, had, I did have one complaint about my notes so far. And it doesn't count because it was my wife. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> notice she's not in here. So, um, but Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11 um, this morning. And we're going to look at uh, basically don't have a hard heart this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In this passage of scripture this morning, we have a warning to those who are professed believers. No doubt if you've been a Christian for uh, any length of time, you've seen people that have, um, um, and maybe even a lot of people that have made some sort of profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And and maybe you've witnessed a dramatic change in their life that, that you've seen, and then something happens. Maybe a trial of some sort, maybe a difficult circumstance in their life, or whatever it might be, and they stop coming to church, and then they start trying to avoid other Christians, and before long, they're back to their old way of living living a life as if there is no God and certainly not living a life that seeks to please God. And we often wonder when we see things like that happen, we wonder, well, well, what happened to them? And the question is, um, was their faith genuine? Is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? Because it seems like it's possible if we look at that kind of life. Why do people do this? Why do they make a commitment only to seemingly fall away? And is that person truly saved? Well, Jesus actually took the time to explain what exactly happens in a parable. It's called the parable of the sower. And he, he talks about the seed of the gospel in that parable and how it fell on four different kinds of soil uh, and, and on the hard path, on the rocky ground that had a thin covering of soil over the top of it. Uh, and then the soil uh, it fell, the seed fell on a soil that was infested with thorns. And then uh, some of the seed falls into good soil. And the description I just gave you of the person that, that makes a commitment and they seem to follow the Lord and then it's as if they fell away, <clears throat> that description is uh, in the parable of the soils and it's the rocky soil. There are all kinds of people that can wax eloquent about their experience. They can, they can talk about how they had a 
salvation experience and how dare anyone question their experience well they even walked down a church aisle one day you can't question that they were maybe even baptized in the church baptistry they knew all the church vocabulary but troubles came and then they left and now their decision their decision is simply a convenient memory of a faith that is dead and jesus had something to say about that Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he says this, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The seed that falls on the rocky soil and the seed that falls on the thorny ground and the seed that falls on the hard path None of them, none of those seeds persevere according to the parable that Jesus gives us. None of them bear fruit unto eternal life. The only one, ones that are saved in that parable are the ones that fall on the good soil. Now, the author of Hebrews has a concern when he's writing the book of Hebrews. And his concern is that the readers of Hebrews are those that are the rocky soil. When affliction comes, they're going to wither. They're going to fall away. <clears throat> they are in danger of going back to Judaism because it is more comfortable for them as they are faced with the threat of persecution over, the, over their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why he said, as we looked at last week in verse 6, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so he, he goes <clears throat> to something they are familiar with. He goes to Psalm chapter 95. They all know about Israel in the wilderness. They all know what happened. And he quotes from the latter half of Psalm 95. It is a reminder of Israel's failure. And it provides the basis for the author to deliver a serious warning to the congregation that he's writing to. And the warning is for them not to have a hard heart. And the warning applies to us today. <clears throat> now the, the passage of scripture says, do not harden your heart. The title of the sermon is, Don't Have a Hard Heart. And so here's the question. How do we keep from having a hard heart? Now, I believe the answer is found in the scriptures and in this passage of scripture that we looked at. So let's, let's take some time to break this down this morning. First, we must be obedient to God's inspired word. We must be obedient to God's inspired word. Word. The author begins verse 7 with, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And then he goes on to quote from Psalm chapter 95. In the next chapter, he's going to mention that David is the human author, author of the book of Psalms. But here he is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is the one who spoke uh, this psalm, which is ultimately an application to the entirety of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit gave them through what we know what we know now as divine inspiration. The beauty of this is not only that the Holy Spirit spoke, but then the author writes today. He's that word today. And so the Holy Spirit spoke and is speaking because not only does he write today, but he also writes the Holy Spirit says, which is present tense and so we must understand that that in our obedience God uses his word to speak to us now God uses his word to speak to us 
now. Now the author of Hebrews is not going into proofs as to why or how we know the inspiration of scripture is fact, but by him attributing Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit, he's making it clear that God's word is inspired. And what it means is that God used human authors to write the scripture, but it is his voice. The apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or as the apostle Paul put in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology book writes this on, on the subject. The common doctrine of the church is and ever has been that inspiration was an influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men which rendered them the organs of God for the infallible communication of his mind and his will. They were in such a sense the organs of God that what they said, God said. We must understand that we must be obedient to God's inspired word to keep us from having a hard heart. And we do this by recognizing that God uses his word to speak to us now. I love what Karl Barth said, finally, as regards to the doctrine of inspiration. It is not enough to believe in it. One must ask oneself, Am I expecting it? Will God speak to me in this scripture? Will God speak to me in this scripture? If we look at scripture as outdated, or we say it does not apply to us, or, or the current times in which we live in, we are making a grave mistake in our hearts are in rebellion to God. If we try to twist scripture to make it mean what we want it to mean, then we're not living a life that is submitted to the inspired word of God. If we are to learn from God, then we must be obedient to his inspired word. And so when we, when we read this scripture, we should indeed be asking that question, will God speak to me? In this word, you come in on Sunday morning asking God, will you speak to me through the proclamation of your word this morning? <clears throat> Secondly, we must learn from the mistakes of others in scripture. If we're going to be obedient to God's inspired word, we must learn from the mistakes of others in scripture. As we read the scripture, we should learn from the scripture. That includes when we read about mistakes of others in the scripture. The Bible is written for instruction. And back in the day, we used to, uh, we used to say this saying, and I'm sure many of you have heard it, uh, of what the Bible means. We used to say it's basic instruction before leaving earth. You ever hear that? You ever hear somebody say that? No? Never heard that, but that's what we used to say. I don't know. Maybe you didn't used to say that. Maybe I'm, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm weird, but um, we ignore the scripture at our own peril. Look at verse seven again. It says, if you hear his voice, our duty is to hear. That is where it starts. We need to, we need to hear. But it is 
hearing with intention. The intention is obedience. It is, it is that we would hear so that we will obey. This is God's word, not just mere man's word. And, and we hear it planning to obey it. It is astounding how many Christians never uh, read like the Old Testament. They read the New Testament, but they act like the Old Testament. It's, it just doesn't apply to us because, well, it's old. Yet throughout the Old Testament, we have scripture recorded of God's deliverance. And we have scripture recorded of, of utter failure and mistakes. And we should read the Old Testament to receive um, instruction in our faith. And God's word is our judge. And when we get uh, uncomfortable with our sin, often we don't want to read the scripture. And we say, well, it might convict me, but we must learn from the mistakes of others in Scripture. Here the author is quoting from Psalm 95. The story of Psalm 95 is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 17. Israel had just left Egypt, delivered by God. They went into the wilderness three days and they had no water except bitter water. So what did they do? Well, they did what what everybody would do right they called a prayer meeting and they trusted that god would give them water and all he had uh, to do was uh, deliver them from the egyptians and he'd done all this and so they they said well god's gonna give us water that's not what happened they didn't call a prayer meeting and trust god was gonna give them water you know what they did they formed a committee on water that's what they did not what they did you know what they did they grumbled against their leader Moses I can hear them now can you believe this Moses why did we follow him he doesn't know what he's doing I mean, everything was fine back in here. Yeah, we were in slavery, but at least we had some water. And you know what Moses? Moses cried out to God. God showed him a tree, and when he threw it in the water, it became sweet. In Exodus chapter 16, God gives manna to feed Israel every day. You would think that perhaps the people would learn to trust God. Like, oh, we've now we've gotten water, and we get, we get manna, and... No, they still don't trust God. We come to Exodus chapter 17 when they're at a place where there is no water again. And, and what do they do? They ask God to provide. No, they fight with Moses and they put God to the test. And God instructs Moses, strike the rock with your staff and water will gush out. And that's what he does. And water comes forth. And Moses is, uh, then names that place Massa, which means a test, and Meribah, which means a coral. In the last part of the quoted psalm where God swore his wrath and said, they shall not enter my rest is mostly, most likely a reference to Numbers chapter 14 when the people again are grumbling this time about the report of the spies that they had sent into the land of Canaan and God had already done so much for them and they're ready to stone Moses and Joshua and Caleb and go back into bondage in Egypt and God intervenes and the Lord says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs i have performed among them they had all these miracles 
All these supernatural events, they had witnessed all of this stuff. They, 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 had a, they had all these things going for them. They had a cloud guiding them by day and fire guiding them by night. They were fed with manna and quail from heaven, and they refused to believe God for the land. I like what Kent Hughes says in his commentary. Faithlessness makes small mountains unclimbable and miniature seas uncrossable. On this occasion, God swore that everyone who grumbled against him would die in the wilderness and not enter the land of rest. Only Joshua and Caleb believed and were spared. When we fail to learn from the mistakes of others in Scripture, it will lead us down the path of distinct behavioral patterns. Namely, what we see in the Israelites. When we fail to learn by the mistakes of others, we become grumblers, complainers, and quarrelers, and we become disobedient. When someone is constantly doing these things, grumbling and complaining and quarreling, it's a sign of a deeper problem in their life. It's a heart problem which we're going to get into in just a moment. Here's the point. We read the scripture. We read about the sins of the Israelites and their failures. We read the New Testament about some, some of the same sins and some, some failures in the New Testament and mistakes that people make. And, and we learn from them and we should therefore do things differently than they did. So we, we need to learn from the mistakes of those in scripture. Thirdly, we need to See God's word speak to us today. Know that God's word speaks to us today. As we already noted, the word says there in the scripture when it says says is in the present tense. But that is followed by the words today if you hear his voice. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today. It's not tomorrow. It's today. Today is a set time to hear from God's word. Today we hear and obey. When God spoke creation into existence, there were no delays. He said it and it happened. Sometimes I wonder why the earth is more obedient than we are. God speaks and the earth obeys, but he speaks to us and we do nothing. Today, hear the voice of God because he speaks. Do not put off obedience for a time when it's more convenient, but obey today. In fact, the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ as Savior, then today is the day that you can be saved. Look at the circumstances of your life. Look at your, look at your life and how miserable you are in sin. And hear the gospel call and be obedient today. Hear God's voice of mercy today. You've never been concerned with your salvation before today, but maybe today you are. Be obedient today and God is calling you don't wait for tomorrow don't wait for next week don't wait until you can enjoy the pleasure of sin even more but respond today don't sit back and say oh I'll wait for God to convince me that he's real it's not written anywhere at any point that you are guaranteed another day but today he calls and today you respond you know I try to preach the gospel the best I can for those who do not know Christ and are ready to receive it. Today is a day of salvation. Today, recognize your sin. 
Today, surrender your life and faith to Jesus. You're not guaranteed your next breath. In fact, you may go home tonight and go to bed and not even wake up tomorrow. Are you willing to jeopardize your soul? Don't jeopardize your soul. Today is the day. Now, I need to speak for a moment here about God's word speaking to us today, because I think sometimes we can we can kind of mix that up and twist that. That does not mean we get to go all willy nilly with God's word. Is that even a, do people even say that anymore? Willy nilly. That, that doesn't mean that we, we can we can do that with God's word and try to make it mean whatever we want. There are proper rules of interpretation when it comes to the, the Bible. We, we call that hermeneutics, which is simply the art of biblical interpretation. And, and when we do not use proper rules of interpreting scripture, then we misapply scripture. And one of the worst things that you can ever say about the Bible, one of the worst things that you can ever say is this, this is what it means to me. Scripture has one meaning. One ultimate interpretations. There can be many applications of a passage, but there is only one interpretation. Let me give you real quick some rules of biblical interpretation that will make your life better and help you interpret scripture better. First of all, when the common sense makes sense, there is no other sense. When the common sense makes sense, there is no other sense. One of my college professors taught me that, and I've never forgotten it. In other words, your first thought is to interpret the scripture literally. Don't go reading things into the Bible and making things up. When it says Jesus fed 5,000, then Jesus fed 5,000. It's not like there's some sort of secret meaning or secret code in the number 5,000. It just means that he fed 5,000. Secondly, you always interpret a passage of scripture historically, grammatically, and contextually. So historically, you understand that the culture uh, that, that is around at the time, the background of when the passage is written, why it was written, grammatically requires you to know the rules of grammar and try to recognize nuances that require you, uh, that the nuances in the text that, that could say, well, why is it saying it this way? And that sort of thing. Uh, in the original language, if you can look at it, uh, contextually means that you consider the context of the verse or the passage, the verses before and the verses after it, the whole chapter, the whole book. Does this fit into the whole Bible and what the whole Bible teaches? You don't just interpret a few verses on their own and, and pull a verse out like we like to like to do. We have a word for that. It's called proof texting. You pull a verse out and you say, well, see, this is what it means. Finally, one last thing. Scripture is always the best interpreter of itself. Scripture is always the best interpreter of itself. So you always compare Scripture with Scripture to determine a meaning. So let me give you an example. We are no longer under the Jewish sacrificial system or the cleansing. However, that does not mean that we can't learn something from it. The reason being is that we see that the fulfillment of the Jewish sacrificial system is seen in Jesus Christ. And so let me see if I can wrap up this point with us this morning. We keep from having a hard heart. In order to keep from having a hard heart, we must come to God's inspired word, ready to obey it, learn from it, 
and know it will speak to us today. Secondly, if we want to keep from having a hard heart, then we must maintain a proper relationship to God. Look again at verse 8. It says, do not harden your hearts. And then we fast forward down to the latter part of verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. Now the heart in scripture is, is the locus of a person's thoughts, their mind, their volition, their emotions, and the knowledge of right from wrong. It's, it's like conscience. The, the scripture says a lot about the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And so if we want to keep from having a hard heart, then we must maintain a proper relationship to God, which will keep our heart in check to God. And you say, well, well, what do you mean? How do we maintain a proper relationship with God? I'm glad you asked that question. That is a great question to ask. First, we must understand that sin always starts in the heart. Sin always starts in the heart always it's not like like sin just creeps up on us it's been hanging around it's been lingering sometimes it's been festering and and the, that starting place is in the heart that's exactly what jesus taught in mark chapter 7 verses 21 through 22 for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. We tend to look at, the, at sin on the outside because we see the manifestation of sin. When someone commits it, we see it happen. But according to uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, whereas we look at the outward, we see the outward manifestation of sin. Uh, we see the appearance of men. God looks on the heart. This is why it's so shocking to us when we see godly pastors who fall or godly men or women who are well-respected fall and they get caught in sin and it's shocking to us. We see them on the outside. We see them in ministry. We see them serving the church, perhaps showing compassion and being kind to others. And the next thing we know, they're committing adultery. And we sit and wonder, how in the world could that happen? How could someone who seemingly had it all together commit such a sin? Because we can't see the heart. We don't see those times that the man is staying up late watching porn on his computer or his phone. We don't notice the lady who's reading the mommy porn book that should be staying away from. We don't see where they've crossed the line over and over and over again and the lust of the heart builds up in their body. The problem when people fall is because they have failed to have a proper relationship with God. Listen, what comes out of people in their life is what is in their heart. When we, when, when we see someone who's bitter, it's because of something that's in their heart. They have a heart problem. And we would do well to recognize this, that all sin, no matter what, can always be traced to the heart because that's where it starts. That, that sin may manifest itself in an outward sign, but it started in the heart at some point. And in order to deal with it, we must 
uh, stop sin at its root. In order to stop sin at its root, you stop it at its first thought. And so you apply scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So in other words, if you want to deal with sin, the moment that thought enters your mind, you capture the thought and you bring it into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. Because sin always starts in our heart. And we like to make all kinds of excuses for sin, don't we? And when we do something, we just say, oh, well, that's just my personality. No, it's, it's sin. It's just, you're just being sinful. And it starts in the heart. And so, deal with it at its root. A hard heart, not only does sin always start in the heart, but a hard heart makes God angry and brings about discipline. Verse 8 says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That word rebellion is an interesting word. It is bitter provocation. It means actions that cause violent and bitter irritation or anger. We know this is the case because in verse 11 we read that God swore his wrath on the people. Now wrath is a feeling of intense anger that does not subside. And when it comes to a hard heart and sin, God is not passive. He's not just winking at the sin saying, oh, it's going to be okay. You'll be all right. In fact, here's what I want us to understand. If you go around professing to be a Christian, to be one of his children, but you have never truly repented of the sin in your life, which was the case with many who perished in the wilderness on that day, God's eternal wrath is upon you, according to John 3, 36. This is exactly what the author is warning about. You can have a remarkable spiritual experience and yet never know Christ. Listen, the Lord disciplines his children so that we can share in his holiness. This is why we should always check our hearts, always make sure that we are walking with the Lord and we will avoid that discipline. Maintain a proper relationship to God, which will keep you from having a hard heart, which leads into our third point for this morning and keeping from a hard heart we must know and submit to God's ways we must know and submit to God's ways look at the last part of verse 10 God says in that verse they have not known my ways let me ask you how can we know God's ways how do we know God's will you ever wonder that? Furthermore, how is it possible that these Israelites did not know God's ways? Listen to God's word in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How in the world can we know God's ways or God's will? I mean, he just said that, that his ways aren't our ways. And his ways are higher than ours. And his thoughts aren't our thoughts. How can we know it? Well, God's ways are revealed through his word. 
So let me explain this real quick without going into too much detail. First, there is the sovereign will of God, also known as the decretive will of God. This is the will of God which brings, which he brings to pass. Whatever he decrees to happen, he says this is going to happen and it happens. This is hidden until it happens. Nobody knows it. We don't know it. He doesn't reveal to you his secret will and then it, and then it happens as if you got some sort of special thing in your life. He does it and that's his decretive will and then we're like, oh, that was the will of God. That's known as a sovereign or decretive will of God. Second, there is the perceptive will of God. That's God's revealed will to us in the scripture, which we have the power to either obey or not obey. To either disobey it or obey it. So like the Ten Commandments, you, you can either obey them or not obey them. That's what is known as the perceptive will of God. And finally, there is the will of God's disposition. This is a description of the attitude or disposition of God, which is revealed to us uh, that what is pleasing to God. And so the perceptive will of God, we can easily know as it is revealed in his word. So we must know and submit to God's ways. So, since that's speaking of his perceptive will. So we can know God's ways. We can know God's ways. So we really are not in any position to plead ignorance to the ways of God. You and I aren't. We can't say, well, God, I, re I really had no idea. How could Israel not know God's ways? They were interested in what God did for them, but they were not interested in God himself. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Salvation is all about knowing God, not just knowing his ways. Israel should have known God's ways, but since they did not know them, they did not submit to them. And, and this time, the time uh, to know God's ways is not later on. The time to know God's ways is not tomorrow, but, but or when you're in a bad situation, suddenly you're seeking God's ways. Know his ways now and submit to them now, and then you're going to be ready when the time of trouble comes. We can know God's ways. Secondly, dealing with God's ways, God sometimes reveals himself miraculously. But that does not change a hard heart. Have you ever heard of someone saying to God that if he does a miracle, then they will believe? You ever heard of that? I have. I've, I've had people, I've been counseling with people and I've had them tell me that. People, people bargain like this with God. God, if you save my, my mother, I will believe. God, if you, if you heal my spouse, I will believe. God, if you help my child, then I will believe. Yet Israel saw some of the greatest miracles ever known. And they went astray. They witnessed the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. God provides water from a rock, man in a desert. 
In fact, look at verse 9. God says, for 40 years they saw God work, yet they still had hard hearts. If all it took was a miracle to get people to believe, these people should have had the strongest faith ever known by anyone. But they didn't. There are times that God does do miracles to bring people to saving faith. But all too often when someone throws up a prayer like that, they don't mean it. They're just making an excuse and so they can continue on in their lifestyle of sin and, and kind of throwing things around to God like as if he's some sort of bargaining chip. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man in Hades pleads with Abraham to send someone to his brothers to warn them and so they would not also come to this place of torment. And what does Abraham say to him? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man says, no, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent basically just like those prayers. Let them see a miracle and then they will believe. And Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Listen, just because someone sees a miracle does not mean that their heart will change. And if that's you this morning, if you're praying for a miracle and making a promise to God, God sees right through it. He sees your heart. Thirdly, sometimes God's way involves trials. Sometimes God's way involves trials and error. Actually, it involves trials and or suffering, sorry. We have to remember God's ways aren't always our ways. God often does things opposite the way than how we would do them. This passage of scripture, speaking of God's deliverance of Israel, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. To deliver the Israelites, there had to be a leader. A man that was raised in the household of Pharaoh, trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians. Then this man had to fail and spend the next 40 years of his life tending sheep out in the wilderness. Sounds like a great leader, right? But this is the leader God wants. A man that goes through trial and suffering. And then God calls Moses and he repeatedly hardens Pharaoh's heart and makes, makes the task even harder for Israel. And as Pharaoh then refuses over and over again to let the people go. And finally, Pharaoh lets Israel go and Moses leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. Awesome. Great job, Moses. We're now trapped. Pharaoh's army is coming on us. But God provides a miracle at the sea and parts the sea. Leads them into a barren desert where there's no water. And then they, they, they find water through God. And God makes it bitter water. And then rather than, than them go directly into the promised land, which was an 11-day journey from where they are, they decide that they need to take the scenic route in the desert. Takes them 40 years. That was God's way. It's what God did with his chosen people. They had to learn to trust God and learn to fight. You see, sometimes God's way involves trial and suffering. God could have done whatever he wanted. He could have made it easy for Israel. He could have wiped out all the Canaanites and said, hey, just go on and take the land. It's yours. And it's, they live happily ever after. But that's not what happened. Later, Israel needs a prophet. 
God's way was to use a woman who was barren to supply the prophet. There are many women in Israel that had children, but God wanted to bring a woman into a desperate situation where she knew her child was the only from God. And when she cried out to God, he gave her Samuel. Later, God wanted a man after his own heart to be the king. He didn't pick the man that Samuel would have picked. Instead, he chose the youngest of Jesse's son, a shepherd boy named David. And then he had David run from Saul for years, afraid of his life before he would become the king. You see, God's ways aren't always our ways. We can go through example after example, through scripture after scripture after scripture. God's ways aren't our ways. Listen closely, not knowing God's ways is dangerous. When the suffering comes, or the trial comes, we are so prone to grumble and complain. It's because we don't get God, that's not what I wanted. And so, to combat that, we learn God's ways, which leads us, leads us to the next subpoint. I'm trying to hurry, I'm skipping a lot of stuff. We can either submit to God's way or grumble and complain about them. We can either submit to God's ways or grumble and complain about them. We know God's ways, it's revealed to us. We are faced with a decision, submission, or complain about it. Remember the warning that we have in this passage from Psalm 95, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. Verse 8 follows verse 7, uh, or falls seven verses of praise in Psalm 95. In fact, listen to Psalm 95, 1 and 3. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great, is a great God and great king above all gods. The context makes it clear for us. The choice is, well, either rejoice in the Lord and everything he does, or we will grumble and turn our back on God and return to the ways of the world. Even if his way is hard, we're still to rejoice. Even if his way is a way of suffering, we are still to rejoice. Remember Paul and Silas in prison singing praises to God? Or how about when Paul was thrown in a Roman prison and fellow Christians were criticizing him? He didn't say, well, these guys aren't treating me right. He didn't complain about his circumstance. He didn't cry out to God, God, I can't believe this. I was doing your work. But instead, Paul writes these words in a Roman prison when his own Christian brothers are hurling accusations at him. And Paul done all this work for the Lord. And there he sits in prison. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Philippians 2.14. In fact, in his short letter to Philippi, the word rejoice occurs over 15 times and the Greek word for attitude occurs over 10 times. When we have the right attitude of trusting God, it will lead us to joy. It will cause us to rejoice even in the midst of great trials. An attitude of pride and self-centeredness will lead us to grumbling and complaining. Finally, before we get to our final point, our refusal to submit to God's ways puts God to the test. Look at verse 9. God clearly states, where your fathers put me to the test. At the root of putting God to the test is the sin of unbelief. We're going to look more at that next week, but here's the thing. God made a promise 
They faced trials that made them question his promise, and they had to decide if God was faithful or not faithful. You see, the Israelites refused to believe God, which amounted to contempt in their life. So it does not matter if we're in a barren desert with no water or whether there are huge giants in that land. We are to have uh, faith in God. When we are self-centered uh, people and self-focused people, those are problems. You see, we see no water as a problem. We see giants as a problem. You know why? Because we're self-focused and self-centered. But when our focus is on God, it's not a problem. They're not obstacles. Our trust in God. When we trust in God's promise, those things that we see as obstacles are meaningless. We're either going to trust in God's promises or we will allow problems to lead us to grumbling. Failure to submit to God's way and trust in his word only puts God to the test. So to keep from having a hard heart, we must be obedient to God's inspired word. We must maintain a proper relationship to God. We must know and submit to God's ways. And finally, we must have our obedience leads to entering God's rest. Our obedience leads to entering God's rest. We're going to deal with this father in chapter 4, but look at what verse 11 says. God says that because of Israel's disobedience, they will not enter his rest, which is the land of Canaan. When God shares in his, or when God uh, pours out his wrath, when it says that God gives his wrath or swears his wrath, it's not some light thing. There's absolutely no rest for those that are under God's wrath. God's rest was speaking to the nation of Israel entering into that promised land. But there is a spiritual fulfillment to it as well, which we're going to see in chapter 4. God's rest is, is a rest that we can't fully fathom sometimes. It's a change of state from activity or work to a cessation of or cessation from work that results in a feeling of refreshing and tranquility and an absence of tension or worry, especially that God provides to us. And so we enter God's spiritual rest when we believe that God is the one who justifies the ungodly and understand that the only way that we have peace and rest on this earth is through him. How can you have rest in your life when all kinds of troubles going on around you? How can you have rest? How can you have peace in your life when there's all kinds of bad things going on? What about when, when your child has cancer? How can you possibly have peace? You trust in God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Conclusion. Quickly wrap this up. This message this morning, I want you to think of God's way. I want you to think of God's way not being like our way. I, I believe the greatest example for this is seen in the cross. At the cross, we see the sinless Son of God Jesus Christ die as a sacrifice for ungodly sinners. And then we see that God justifies ungodly sinners through faith alone. And that's scandalous. This is not the way that, that I would have chosen, nor you would have chosen, but it's God's way. 
And it puts an end to human pride and knowing that there is nothing in us that's worthy of salvation. There's nothing in me that would, that would warrant salvation of my soul. I ask you this morning, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Have you submitted to God's word and his ways, even when those ways are filled with trial and suffering? Listen, our heart is either hardening towards God because we are resisting his sovereign ways, or our heart is softening towards God because you are submitting to his sovereign word and his ways. How we respond due to trials in our life reveals our heart. It reveals whether your heart is hardening or softening. And so I ask you this morning, is your heart hardening or softening? Are you obedient to God's word? Are you maintaining a proper relationship with God? Do you know and submit to his ways so that you may endure? Are you doing that this morning? And perhaps you'd say, Pastor, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Or maybe you, you want prayer. I'd be glad to pray with you. You can, you can pray on your own up here. Or you can pray in your pew if that's, if that's you. Maybe you need to have a time of confession with the Lord. Maybe he revealed some sin or something in your life this morning that you need to deal with. Where you need to be submissive to God's ways. Maybe you see that your heart is hardening instead of your heart softening. And if that's you this morning, just, I just want to speak to you. Stop the grumbling. Stop the complaining and submit to God's ways. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, today is a day of salvation. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, today is a day of salvation. I'll be standing down front if you need prayer or you'd like to, like to talk. And we can do that. You can wait till after the service and talk to me then. But I want to give you the chance to respond this morning here in a minute when we sing a song. Let's close a prayer.